This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Let's talk about um, some differences, Blair, between you, a licensed insolvency trustee, and those credit counselors that we Mm -hmm. hear and see so much about. There's some key words, terms certainly in in the business. It'd be great to sort of go through them so that we figure out what exactly they mean, because often they're way out of people's wheelhouses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's go. So let's start. Let's go through it all today. Good, let's do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, w- uh, well, let's talk about first uh, debt settlement agencies. I know mm-hmm. that's a term that gets thrown around quite a bit. Yeah, so if you're looking for help with your debt, you're going to find a number of folks that are out there. You know, one is a licensed insolvency trustee, another's a credit counselor. We're going to talk about those. But a third to keep an eye out, and this is almost like kind of a caveat emptor, be very careful uh, when you deal with this, is called debt settlement agencies. They sound and, very good. Well, we all want our debt settled, right? right? And, you know, agency sounds official, but they, now, that's that's about it. The words are it there um, because essentially what these folks do um, is they tell you, don't pay any of your debts. So stop paying all of your creditors, you know, credit cards, MasterCard, Visa, all that stuff, and instead pay us instead as a debt settlement agency. Okay. Pay our fee each month. And then what we're going to do is we're going to take part of the money that you pay to us and we're going to put it aside to eventually make a settlement offer of, you know, maybe 10 or 20% of the debt in full payment. Now, usually they tell you this is probably going to take a couple of years. So you stop paying those creditors for a couple of years. You start putting money in our account and then eventually we'll get your debt settled. The problem yeah. is that most of the time your creditors won't wait a couple of years. Right. You know, they'll either consider to sue you or harass you or start to take your wages. Um, and there's no guarantee they'll ever accept any offer. So the debt settlement agency, if they can't make a deal, they don't really care because they're getting their fees either way. So you've got to be careful. A lot of these are U.S.-based um, you know, corporations that are running debt settlement services. Uh, the province of BC has started to put in you know, more stringent consumer protection legislation, but in general, be very careful when there's debt settlement. And even if there's consumer protection in place, it uh, doesn't necessarily mean that that will uh, impact uh, an American-based That's operation. Right. Yeah, good luck holding them accountable. Mm-hmm. And and that whole regulation thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes people go, oh, too much regulation in the mm-hmm. day, but at the same time, you need folks to pay attention to what others are doing, especially when it's is with money and my Mm. money or your money. Oh yeah, I've had a number of folks and some of them have been senior citizens who couldn't afford to be defrauded, who were defrauded by US-based debt settlement agencies that actually outbound called them, somehow got their name on, you know, a mailing list or phone list or something and said, we're going to solve your problems. And one lady said, you know, I thought it was an answer to my prayers and all they did was take money for nothing. Sure. And answer to her prayers, absolutely, because they they know how to talk to you. They know all the right words and they know how to uh, move you in, in their direction. So credit counselors then, what's the difference there? Yeah, so essentially what a credit counselor can do is there's more regulation. Now there's still, you know, no set qualifications and we'll go through all of that, but they are provincially regulated and credit counselors, essentially they're acting on behalf of the people that you owe money to with the idea that they want to get 100% of the debt repaid 
but they're going to be able to give you a break on the interest and give you some good financial counseling, some good tools to move forward. Okay. So if you're in a situation where you know you can't pay all the debt back with interest, but you know you can pay all the debt back if they would just stop charging the interest each month, and you don't have any government debt because government debt absolutely will not work with a credit counselor. But if you've just got a bit of credit card debt, you need a break on the interest. That's typically where a credit counselor can help you out. And there's one of the, the weaknesses with credit counselors. Because they don't have that authorization mm-hmm. to deal with government debt, that's where they fall short compared to going to a licensed insolvency trustee. Exactly, Elaine. And that's another point, too, is because they don't have the ability to use federal law, uh, whatever deal it credit counselor works out, it's an individual deal with each debt. And if you've got five debts, hopefully they can get all five of them to freeze the interest, but there's no guarantee of that. So, you know, someone could opt out, they could start to sue you separately, uh, which is totally different from what you could get when you're working with a licensed insolvency trustee. Yeah. And do you want to touch on that just a little bit, what a licensed insolvency trustee can do for you? Yeah. So in in LIT for short, uh, we used to be called bankruptcy trustees or trustees in bankruptcy, but the government said about a year ago, that's scaring people away. And what we do is a lot broader than just a bankruptcy. So for two thirds of people that come to see me, um, I'm helping them file a consumer proposal. And a consumer proposal, it's a deal where you avoid a bankruptcy, you stop all of the interest on the debt, and you reduce it down to what you can afford. So that's a huge difference with credit counseling. With credit counseling, you've got to pay 100% of the debt back. Whereas with a consumer proposal, you usually pay back a third of the debt or a quarter of the debt or or something like that. Um, So one third, sorry, two thirds of what I do is help people with consumer proposals. The other third is if the situation is so dire and, you know, even paying back a third or a quarter of the debt is not going to be possible, that's when we consider a personal bankruptcy. So in Canada, only a trustee is empowered to file a personal bankruptcy or to file a consumer proposal. A lawyer can't do it. A credit counselor can't do it. No one else has that power other than a trustee. This the, we're going to stick uh, go back to uh, credit counseling because I think this is a really important piece of it. Mm-hmm. There's two different kinds of uh, credit counselors out there. Yeah. Uh, there's a for profit and a not for profit, yeah. which I was surprised to learn. Yeah, and I would say don't be misled. Um, it is the headline here. Um, just because something is a not for profit doesn't necessarily mean it's an altruistic, you know, out for the common good. You know, there's no self interest there, and um, credit counselors are, are no different. So I would suggest to you that there's no difference between a for profit or a not for profit credit counselor. In fact, sometimes a not for profit credit counselor actually has a conflict of interest that a for profit credit counselor might not have. And the key piece, again, dealing with the credit counselor, and we're sort of repeating ourselves just a little bit here, mm-hmm. but they can't deal with the big stuff like income tax That's if right. you're if you're uh, late or haven't filed that and you owe student loans, ICBC, MSP, those key, really important pieces, mm-hmm. they can't do a thing for you. Yeah, the best analogy I would use for a credit counselor, and you know, this is a fact, is it's a collection agency. So credit counselor, they're very, you know, nice, touchy-feely, they'll say all the right words, but at the end of the day, they are funded by the people that you owe money to with the idea that they want to get all of the debt repaid. So if you're in the province of Ontario, the Credit Counseling Society of BC, which is a not-for-profit unit here, um, they're registered as a collection agency in Ontario doing the exact same thing. So forgetting about all the advertising, you are dealing directly with a collection agency when you're dealing with a credit counselor. And they and they, they don't have the knowledge or expertise or education uh, to be even to be able to do that work. Or if they do, they're not it's not demanded of them mm-hmm. to have that. Yeah, there's been a, a number of media stories that have said, you know, for the biggest credit counselor 
counselors in Canada, there's no set qualifications, there's no regulatory body, um, you know, there's no dispute resolution. So, you know, obviously they care about their reputation, so they they generally want to do well by their folks. Um, but if something goes wrong, you've got nobody you can appeal to, essentially. Great. So, the, again, the difference between them and mm-hmm. an LIT, a licensed insolvency trustee, yeah. big difference. Oh, I'm, I'm regulated um, six ways to Sunday, so to speak. So my license comes from Industry Canada. Um, I'm an officer of the court. Anything that I do is subject to court review. It's subject to my regulator, the superintendent of bankruptcy, making sure um, that I'm administering the law correctly. Because you can imagine in a bankruptcy situation, the reason, or if consumer proposal, the reason I'm there is because people aren't getting paid in full. And people that don't get paid in full have a lot of concerns. And they want to make sure a process is followed. So any trustee that you deal with is going to make sure they follow what the law says, follow the process. And you can and you can do that. And the thousand or so LITs across the country can do that because you have the education and, mm-hmm. and the experience and the knowledge to do that. And that's a big difference, right? Like you've actually mm-hmm. gone to school uh, to know how to do all this. Yeah. And one of the, the things I'm most proud about in, in the job too um, is I'm required to be neutral. I'm required to be impartial, agnostic, whatever word you want to use about the solution that people take. So my job when someone comes into the door is I need to understand their situation. I need to understand what are their debts, what are their assets, what's the family situation, what's the budget, but the options that they choose I'm required not to be self-interested. So I have to explain to them, if you do credit counseling, here's what it looks like, here's the pros and the cons. If you do a bankruptcy or a proposal, same type of thing, and then it's up to the person to make that decision. I find if you go directly to a credit counselor, what you're going to walk out with is typically the credit counselor's product, because otherwise they don't make any fees from that. And again, there's no requirement that they be neutral or impartial. I'm required to be neutral and impartial. If someone walks in and they don't need my help, I'll be quick to refer them to someone else. And if you have a problem with either uh, a licensed insolvency trustee or a credit counselor or whatever, I mean, there's actually bodies that that regulate and look after, Mm -hmm. look after me going to see someone like you. Yeah, it, it's so funny, Elaine, because when I have this discussion in my office with folks, you know, people, that, you know, consistently the jaws drop. They're like, really, this is a collection agency that's advertising this way? And, you know, really, I went to the, to you know, see a credit counselor and they didn't tell me about a proposal or when they told me about a proposal, they made it sound like, you know, it was a way worse thing than what they were offering when in reality, it's quite a bit better. You know, people were just shocked to know that the difference between a debt management plan where you pay back 100% of the debt with a credit counselor um, and a consumer proposal where you pay back a third or a quarter of the debt, the only difference is the amount that you pay back. The actual credit rating impact is exactly the same. So for someone with full information, why would you choose to pay back 100% of the debt unless you're fully able to do so without hardship? Then yes, go for it. But a lot of folks that I deal with, they just weren't aware that a consumer proposal would give them the same credit rating hit, but save them a ton of money. Something else too that you said earlier, uh, and and I'd like to go into it just a little bit more, Mm -hmm. about talking about the connection between the credit counseling societies or the credit counseling bodies and the creditors. Mm -hmm. And there's often... Do we say 100% of the time or do we just say often a connection between those two bodies? Well, I'd say almost always. So I've, I've seen a few credit counselors where they're strictly private, you know, they're fee for service and they don't receive anything back from creditors. Um, but for the vast majority of credit counselors, and I encourage people to do their own research, you know, go on CRA's website or approach the credit counselors and ask them for their financial disclosures. Uh, you'll see the vast majority, 70%, 80% plus um, of the dollars that come into the credit counseling um, or 
organizations are typically funded by creditors. So again, if I'm always thinking, well, you know, who's pulling the strings? To me, it's the person that's providing the funds. And that's why when you deal with a credit counselor, you may not be getting your best objectives tackled. You might be getting the creditor's best objectives, which is get all of the money back. Whereas you guys, the LITs, the Licensed Insolvency Trustees, you're kind of Switzerland in all of this. That's you're a good very, way to put it. very neutral. Yeah. Very neutral. You know, the way I describe it sometimes is I'm like a referee. So I want you to understand the rules of the game. However you choose to, you know, use those rules, as long as you're staying within the lines, I'm okay with that. So if I explain the rules are for a proposal, you're going to pay back a third, be clearly, um, you know, open with all your disclosures and you do that. That's all a trustee's role is, is to help you access the system. I like the fact that you mentioned too, that it's really important for folks to do their own research, to really investigate the processes that are out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I encourage everyone to do that. I love it, Elaine. Often after our shows, I'll get a few messages throughout the weeks of people saying, oh, I heard this on the, on the show. Just want to clarify and things like that. Everything we're saying here, you can verify it online. You can give me a call at Sands and Associates. We're happy to talk about this stuff. Now, if any of this information resonates with you or you've heard something that you think, oh, I'd like to know more about that. First of all, the website for Sands and Associates, sands-trustee.com. It's terrific. It's got a ton of frequently asked questions, very easy to read and, to ver- and understand. If you'd like to get that free consultation, also very easy to do. The number is 1-800-661-3030 to get that free consultation and to find an office near you. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. I had to laugh when I saw the title of this segment, <laughs> Quick Sands Financial Tips. And I thought, no, not quick sand, but <laughs> quick and easy financial tips. That's what this is all about. Exactly. Uh, yeah, it's a bit of a guide. That's what we're giving you to maximum financial success. Uh, like little changes you can make to your habits. And, and as we've talked about before, little changes can add up to something big at the end of the year or at the end of the month or at the end of the week, depending on what kind of changes you're making. Mm-hmm. So this one's all about uh, the financial uh, counseling sessions that are a serious integral part of uh, helping folks go through a uh, consumer proposal or bankruptcy process. Let's talk about some of the tips that you can share uh, with folks when when they're thinking about this. Yeah, so it, it's a surprise to some clients when they come to see us that it's not as simple as, hey, we just scrub off scrub off all the debt, you know, send you on your merry way, and that's that. Um, as you said, Elaine, the counseling is just an integral part of what we provide to our clients to try to help them understand what got them to the situation, what they can do to get through it, and how the future is going to be different if they implement some different behaviors. So a few years ago, we came up with this idea of a series of quicksands tips. And, you know, we did a 60-second web video series that was very well received. So on a couple of our segments, we're going to talk about these specific tips and what was well received about them. So the first one, this one probably got the most traction out of all the tips that we've done. And I think it's because it's very concrete. It tells people, here's some good guidelines to really set yourself up well. And this is the idea of a personal budget. So if your goal is to be debt-free, if your goal is just to know where your money's going to go each month or just to, you know, to assess yourself versus others or versus best practices, it's good to have a bit of a starting point. To, you know, what should a budget look like? What are mm-hmm. some good categories and good percentages that are out there? Um, and the ones to start with here on a percentage basis. So if you're sitting down with a budget, um, your housing costs, typically about 35% of your after-tax take-home pay is what you should be guiding for or aiming for if, if you're uh, making a budget together. Okay. 
Okay. Now, this can be a challenge in Vancouver. You know, Absolutely. five years ago, I was saying, okay, about 30% housing. And now we're saying, well, 35% is, is still, you know, reasonable. I see people at 50% of their income is going to housing quite often in Vancouver and the lower mainland. Yeah. So if your housing is at 50%, you just need to know, well, what you can spend in other categories has to be lower than that because that's already out of whack. Right. So housing at 35% is important. Uh, transportation at 15%. So this would be a car payment, ICBC, public transport, car sharing, different things like that. So if you're spending more than 15% of your take-home income on transportation, best practices would say it's a little bit out of whack there and you may want to try to save on other parts of your budget. Uh, moving on from there, food and general living expenses. So that's estimated at about 30% of your expenses. Now, unfortunately, this is something that we just see go up every year. We hear a food inflation coming exactly. in 2020 as well. Yeah. Um, so 30%, yeah, it's a reasonable estimate, but can be very tough to meet that type of a guideline. And then the thing, the area that probably takes the biggest hit is, is savings at 10%, yeah, right? Exactly. So what we've noted down here is savings, a goal is 10%. And you know, any financial professional would say, hey, if you're investing 10% of what you make for long-term growth, you're going to be fine. You're going to retire with lots of money in the bank and all that. But that's the first thing that people stop doing is they stop saving when there's just suddenly not enough money to go around. And is 10% a little unrealistic for folks? Well, it's a best practice. Um, You know, some people might say 35% for housing is unrealistic, but if you're able to keep your housing at 35% and your food at 30, then it's a good idea to plan, yeah, 10% of my savings before, 10% of my income before I spend it, um, it should be saved. Um, The last category here to add up to 100% is we have debt payments at 10%. Now, the ideal state for this is at zero, but if you are carrying a balance, if it's less than 10% of your at-home take, of your take-home pay, it's probably reasonable you can deal with it, but it's when your debt payments start to exceed 10% of your take-home pay, that's when you really find yourself squeezed and that's when people really start to subsidize using credit to pay their living expenses and things can get completely out of whack. So we wanted to give some good guidelines here. They don't fit everybody, but for starting off with a personalized budget, it's good to know, are you above, below, or in line with these guidelines? Is there a time period that you should look at to check in on the budget and see if you're making it or meeting it in any way? You know, I would start at first almost checking in daily. So for the first couple months that you're doing your budget, you know, make sure you're updating it regularly make sure all your expenses are getting categorized on a reasonable basis. Um, after there, I think it can be, you know, every month you sit down, you get all your statements in, you allocate a few things over. And then what's really important is you examine and you understand where did you fall short? Where did you succeed? And what are your lessons for the next month? Okay. Now, can we move on to the next one that's highlighted? Certainly. Because I, I, I can just imagine you doing this. Mm-hmm as an experiment to see. Ride with cash. Uh-huh. I can see you doing that. Well, and I do. <laughs> so, I yeah, no, what we mean by ride with cash is just the physical pain of, of you know, uh, parting with, whether it's the brown bill, the blue bill, the red, whatever color it is, it's totally different than just putting down the card for another faceless, nameless t- transaction. It's mm-hmm. just tap and beep and you're done. There's something visceral, there's something emotional about when you're carrying cash. So yes, cashless conven- convenience um, is nice, but there's there's definitely um, a lot to be said for carrying the cash, for spending it, for not going over budget. If you're only going to you know, bring what you can afford to spend for the night, you're not going to go over budget at the end of the night by putting down a card uh, or taking out extra money at the bank machine. So but, encourage people to ride with cash. And it sort of falls into the next part of this is because we're talking about ways uh, for folks trying to cut costs with their budget, mm-hmm. doing only having a certain amount of money, hard, cold cash in your hand, it would certainly help you keep within that. Yeah. So what it 
what couples can do, and I love to get these reports back from some of my clients, um, is to say, okay, at the start of the week, couples are going to withdraw you know, his money and her money, which is what we've allocated for our budgets, and do it all in cash. Leave the cards at home for that entire week, and then at the end of the week, decide what have we learned about this? Was it easy? Was it hard? Uh, were there some times where we know we would have overspent if we had the cards with us, but we didn't, so we couldn't. So it, it can be a great experiment to, to provide. So what about fixed costs that people are forced to look at or, or have in their life on a regular basis? Yeah, so the point there is to really understand what is fixed and what's not fixed. So a bunch of your costs, you know, you're not going to be able to do a whole lot with because there's, it's just so much so difficult to change them. So and what would those be? Well, you know, rent, for example, you can't really do much to deal with your no rent. No negotiating. Well, especially in Vancouver, the vacancy is, you know, close to 1%. Yeah, you can try to negotiate. They'll go to the next person down the line. Or if you have to leave your apartment, odds of you finding something less expensive, you know, can be a little bit low given where things are going these days. Right. Um, but you do want to take a look at where you could save some money. So things that might seem fixed to you, but aren't, um, you know, something like your cell phone. Um, you might think, oh, gee, I've got a monthly plan that doesn't change. You should give them a call and speak to customer retention and see what can happen. You might be able to get a whole lot better deal than what you're getting right now. Or staying within the budget for the cell phone too. Like, mm-hmm. so you're not having overcharges because that can... That can be worth a whole month's worth. Oh, exactly. If you if you roam down to the states and you didn't you know get the right package on it, yeah, you can definitely spend a whole lot there. Um, you know, another is a cable package. So don't accept that you know you've got to be spending a hundred to two hundred dollars per month for your basic package. There's probably some great promotions you can get if you give a, if you give a phone call and say, hey, I want to be a customer here, but I need some help to bring down some of my costs. Now I know we're sort of going down a bit farther here in terms of what we're going to talk about in this segment, but I think that needs versus wants kind of came into what you had just said. You know, mm-hmm. when you're looking at what your fixed costs are and what there aren't, then that's where you'd have that discussion in your head or with someone else. Yeah, so many things come down to, you know, do I actually need this or is this just something that I want? And, you know, for a lot of people, this can be a really difficult um, type of, of decision to make, especially within the moment. So the advice to hear is if you're not sure if something is a need or if it's a want, what you need to do, sorry to use the, the word again, uh, is to surf the urge. Mm-hmm. So what you need to say is, okay, I think I need this. I'm pretty sure I really need it. I'm just going to wait. I'm going to give it, you know, if it's an online shopping thing, I'm going to give it about an hour or so. I'm going to come back to this. If it's a major purchase, I'm going to give it a couple of days or so. If it still feels like you really need it, well, maybe you actually do need it. But what you'll find is a lot of wants. Um, we are we get into an emotional cycle and it just starts to build on one another, but it's not actually a want. It's not something that we really need to purchase. Yeah, no, it's a really good point because um, I just had a, a friend, friends of ours did that. They wanted to buy a specific automobile and they were excited about it and and jazzed about mm-hmm. it. They'd done all the research and they were all ready to jump in. And then they thought, you know what? I think we'll wait on this. And? It's it's a big it's yeah. a big expenditure and maybe not the maybe the technology isn't quite there yet for them to jump in. So listen, if any of this resonates with you and you want to take a stab at either creating budget or looking after those debts, contact and uh, a local Sands and Associates representative. They're all over British Columbia. It's nice and easy to do. Here's the 1-800 number, 1-800-661-3030, or go online and visit the Sands online, sands-trustee.com to book your confidential free debt consultation. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. On the line with us is Dr. Leanne Davies. She's the founder and CEO of Agenomics. 
holds a Ph.D. in aging, health, and well-being, and co-authored this book with Blair called When Life Bites You in the Wallet. Uh, Leanne and Blair, both pretty passionate, I'd say, about uh, helping folks uh, do better with their money, and Leanne, specifically for you, for folks uh, to deal with as, as we all age. So thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. So, of course, real estate market always uh, comes up as a, as a great thing for folks to think about and to get involved in. Uh, we're sort of focusing on the bank of mom and dad in this segment, and uh, I kind of like it. I, I never had a bank of mom and dad, but I know that if I had children that needed it, I would be that bank of mom and dad. It, am I sort of on the right track there? You sure are. It's certainly a trend. It's a trend that's been around for a long time, but we see it increasing really in acceptance, but unfortunately, it's also increasing in expectation. And why do you think that is? I know know that's a little off topic, but why do you think that is so much today? Well, I think that a lot of it comes to how you've introduced this whole segment, which is real estate has become, you know, a a general topic and concern for many of us. Not everyone lives in an expensive real estate market, but of course, so many people in Canada do. And, And it just creates that whole conversation of how will these young people start to enter into the real estate market and find a place where they can have a family, grow their careers, all of those things that are are normal expectations of life. So we're concerned and we know that the generation of mom and dad or sometimes it's grandma and grandpa um, may be there to help them and give them that good start. And that sense of a windfall uh, too for the for the parents, for the bank, for the mom and dads, because all of a sudden the home, the family home that maybe they bought for thirty or forty or sixty or seventy thousand mm-hmm. dollars is now worth a crazy amount of money, uh, regardless of where you're living in the Lower Mainland or even the South Island. Uh, I mean, it's 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 an easy it's an easy jump to make to think that oh they they can afford it, so I should be able to do this. Oh, sure it is. And and that's where the expectation part of this comes in, where we've got people who are thinking, you know, I'm young, I went to university, I'm all ready to start my career, but how can I get that jump start like mom and dad had? And maybe mom and dad can help me. So it's not um, an unreasonable expectation, but when you start to drill down into it, there are certainly some concerns that you need to be aware of. Let's talk about those concerns, Leanne. Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing is, I think, just the term, the bank of mom and dad. Um, if we start to look at it from the standpoint of the older generation as being a bank, that's different than how we looked at maybe mom and dad giving a, a little bit of a leg up from years ago. So we used mm. to see things like, oh, I might save that um, baby bonus check when my children were young. So we've got that generation who maybe benefited from their parents saving those, those smaller bits of money and help them through university. But now, um, you know, that was a gift. But now we've got this whole concept of bank of mom and dad. And if we really look at that, a bank comes with obligations. If we look at what a, the term banking means, it's not a gift. It's not a free handout. It is a obligation and there's a commitment to meet that obligation or there's a consequence. Good point. And not, a, not everybody thinks, of, or at least the, the recipients of that, of that money may not necessarily think of those things. 
That's right. And that's where there needs to be a very good family conversation. And this is the importance of having that open communication at the outset before the actual banking transaction, so to speak, takes place. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about what it means for both parties and what the expectation is for both parties. That means putting time frames around it, um, acknowledging if there are strings tied to it, such as if you sell that house that we're helping you purchase, um, we want to have a certain amount of the money back. Uh, there's all sorts of things that need to happen in this conversation. I guess, Leanne, as you were speaking, I thought it was very interesting, just, just the concept here that, you know, in the past, the bank of mom and dad might be, you know, just some savings that mom and dad had, you know, built up over time, whether it's baby bonus or, or whatever. What it seems to be now that I've seen, um, you know, even anecdotally in my circle of friends is it's, you know, we're sharing in mom and dad's windfall, so to speak. We're sharing in some of their real estate appreciation that, you know, in this um, incredible run up in house prices that the current generation feels like they missed the boat on, um, you know, in some ways, it's not money that mom and dad have saved. It's, it's, somewhat found money is the way sometimes I think the recipients can can look at it. And to me, that seems a little bit of a dangerous way to consider, you know, a dollar is a dollar, whether it's a real estate appreciation or money that's been saved over years. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And the found money concept is a really interesting one. And I think what's also changed with that perspective is I think back to when I was younger and I can remember, um, I can remember being in high school and kids being given cars when they turned mm-hmm. 16. And of course, I told my parents about that and they were like, yeah, dream on kids. That's <laughs> not going to be happening for you. Um, and then these kids also ended up getting down payments for houses and so forth. But when I think about where that windfall came from, often those were um, business people who had built up businesses, um, who had built up legal firms and so forth, and had made uh, a lot of money through that type of work. And so it wasn't as obvious to us kids or young adults about how much money there really was. Um, Whereas today, we know how much houses cost, Mm -hmm. and we know these windfalls are coming from something that we're all very aware of. And that might be why this expectation of the bank of mom and dad and that found money is being being um, talked about more and expected more because we're more aware of it. But it's always gone on. Yeah, absolutely. We're very aware of it. I mean, it's you can't you can't get away from that uh, story being told over and over again. So, Leanne, what's your suggestion then or suggestions for for parents who want to sort of give their kids or children, uh, set them up a little bit better for their own success or financial independence? Because that seems like if, if you've got a good foundation in that as a young person, then things are going to look and seem a little bit different than those who don't have that. Sure. I think um, that it really comes down to this conversation. Um, and it's a conversation from a, a few perspectives. And I think the way a parent can start this is to say to their, um, to their children, your well-being's important to mom and dad, um, but in talking about your well-being, and we know that you have some hopes and dreams and we want to support those, we want you to understand that what we're about to talk about are my earned assets, whether they've been earned through the real estate market and the good fortune through that or through the businesses I've had or so forth. And the other part of the earned assets are my time. And if you have expectations for my time, such as 
helping out with daycare situations or having you come back and live in our house and spend more time in our house where you save up more money. We can talk about that, but only under the condition that you understand that these are my assets and that we need to put some boundaries around this. I remember hearing a very wealthy uh, celebrity couple uh, talk with their children, and their children said something like, well, we have this, and we have that, and and the dad said, actually, I have that, and your mother and I have this, but you guys actually don't. You've been freeloading for a while, and things are about to change. Yeah, and that's perfect. It, it, It is very much the case. They are the assets of the older generation, mom and dad or grandma and grandpa, And that younger generation needs to first understand that point, because if they don't understand that point, the next part of the conversation is not going to make any sense at all. I would think that that'd be a pretty hard conversation to start as well. Have you got some tips on how to start that? Yeah, start it early. That's the easiest one. (laughs) (laughs) So it shouldn't be a surprise at the age of 30. Yeah. Yeah. So when even with your children, if you have very young children um, and talking about, you know, different things that maybe you buy for the house. So let's say that you've you've bought um, a new TV, big screen TV now that we're going to see a number of people get it at Christmas time. Um, that would be something for people to say, for families to say, you know, this is wonderful that we're able to buy this for our family. And this is why mom and dad work so hard to be able to do this. And now it's something that the family gets to share, but mom and dad bought it. And this is why it's important to learn how to save money. Or for their birthdays, another occasion, if there's something that um, that gets purchased. Again, it, it's talking about how you're able to do that in a family, that this, this item that they bought that the child really wants for their birthday, it's because mom and dad work hard for it and are happy to share that for this item. But mom and dad buy things for their own use as well. And it starts to really, I think, create a more open conversation all the way along about what is credit, how do you use credit, how do you save for things, where is savings important, um, why is an education important, how does that give you a leg up as well. And those are conversations throughout the child's lifetime, right into their adulthood. Yeah, and trying to have all those at, at once, <laughs> it's definitely not going to work, but something gradual, I think that that's a great a great insight there. Um, Leanne, I just had a, a question, um, and sorry, I've lost, lost my train of thought here. <laughs> but you're right, Blair. All at once doesn't work. Nobody mm. can absorb that. And mm. also, ah. if you try to do something all at once, mm. it's almost like the parent is chastising the adult child. You can't do that. Thank you. And, and Leanne, sorry, I've got my question now. Um, the idea of involving professionals, definitely that can't happen at your you know, initial conversation, but I see it with a lot of my clients where mom and dad might have given some money for the down payment if they've done it right and they've gotten someone to you know, put it on the mortgage as a title charge, that can be valid and they can still get their money out. If they haven't done it right, then you know, they can really have some challenges. So I guess what's the t- when's the key time to get some expertise involved? Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up because there's there's that aspect that you talked about where we need to have legal and financial expertise involved before the asset is handed over. Uh, the parent or the owner of that asset needs to completely understand the obligation um, that's being created both for them and for the child who's receiving that. So if it's signing something, the person who has added their signature to it, mom or dad, now have an obligation that they may not understand. They may think the obligation is just for the adult child, and it no longer is. And we've just most recently seen 
uh, a, a newer obligation coming onto the horizon, which is grandparents who have been providing financial assets and babysitting and so forth to grandchildren and now are being held uh, accountable by the courts, there's cases now coming forward as to what type of um, ongoing financial um, re- uh, commitment that they have to that grandchild. Do they need to provide a monthly sum going forward to raise that grandchild? So these are significant issues that are having huge legal ramifications and can destroy somebody's retirement. Leanne, we're going to cut, cut you off right there. For more information, check out Leanne's website, agenomics.ca. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. We're continuing our discussion about consumer proposals. Uh, A couple of things. First of all, only a licensed insolvency trustee can facilitate a consumer proposal. We've covered some of the basics already in one of the earlier segments, Um, but this is going into a bit more detail. So we're going to assume, first of all, and, and if, you, if you don't know, we're going to cover that as well, right off the bat. Let's, let's just go over again what a consumer proposal is and then the sort of the details of that, yeah. a little more in-depth. We'll start at the high level. So a yeah. consumer proposal, it's a legal agreement. It's only available by working through a licensed insolvency trustee. And what it allows you to do is to consolidate all of your debts into a single payment to stop all of the future interest and to reduce those debts to what you can afford to repay. So quite often, consumer proposal uh, will be a repayment of maybe 20 to 40% of the debt outstanding over a period of usually two to four years or so. So it's a reduced payment ar- arrangement to help you get out of debt without resorting to a bankruptcy. And bankruptcy, consumer proposal, two very different things, Mm -hmm. but can only be facilitated by a licensed insolvency trustee. Absolutely. Only a licensed insolvency trustee is empowered by the government to implement these remedies, and it costs nothing to meet with a trustee. So if someone out there is saying, hey, I think I'm in a consumer proposal, but I'm paying this person who's not a trustee, you're probably not in a consumer proposal then at that point. So talk to a trustee. Um, There should be no fees other than what you're paying in the proposal. Okay. Who will know? Because that sometimes gets in the way of people taking action sooner than later. Mm-hmm. Um, who's going to know that I that I filed a consumer proposal? Yeah, that's a big fear for a lot of people, and it's generally more overblown than, than actual fact. So the people that will know that you filed a consumer proposal is the people that you owe money to, the people that we have to tell them, hey, you can no longer collect from this individual. You can't call them, harass them. If you're taking them to court, all that has to stop. So the people that you owe money to, they're notified almost immediately upon you filing a consumer proposal. It's important to know who's not notified. So your employer typically is never notified unless your wages were already being seized. Their employer at that point knows that you've already got a debt problem because they're having to give away part of your paycheck every month. So in that case, a trustee would tell the employer, okay, that wage garnishment has to stop because now this person is under protection with the trustee. But otherwise, if you've acted early enough, there's no reason for an employer to ever know because most people don't tend to owe their employers money. Some do, but quite often not. Um, So typically your employer doesn't know. Uh, Your neighbors, they would generally not know. There's no big notice that goes on your door or something like that. I know in some cultures around the world, there is. If someone does a bankruptcy or a proposal, it's public shaming. That doesn't happen in Canada, even in a bankruptcy and definitely in a consumer proposal. Your neighbors would typically not be informed. Uh, A lot of people are scared that there might be something in 
in the newspaper. Maybe they've leafed through once and they saw a bankruptcy notification in mm-hmm. the newspaper. Well, first off, only bankruptcies would ever be in the newspaper. Proposals never. And second off, it's a, less than 1% of bankruptcies actually ever make it to the newspaper. Vast majority of cases are still very, very private, but they're guaranteed 100% of proposals do not appear in the newspaper. Okay. Um, how long does a consumer proposal show up on my credit history? Yeah, and that's a big question a lot of people have because obviously when you're filing a consumer proposal, uh, it's going to put a ding on your credit because you're not paying everything back in full. Now, the way to keep perfect credit would be to just keep doing these minimum payments for the rest of your mm-hmm. life and never build any net worth, uh, but you'd have great credit. Uh, what happens when you do a consumer proposal is your credit takes a hit. So the way that it's reported for both Equifax and TransUnion is from the day that you sign that proposal, for the next six years, if someone pulls a credit report, they're going to see that you filed a consumer proposal. doesn't mean they're not going to give you credit, and you also have the right to put some notations on your credit bureau to say you know, here were the circumstances of the proposal. Here's what I was going through. Here's why I had to do it. Or you can choose not to do that. But either way, for six years from the date of signing a proposal, um, that's when it's going to show that it's happened. Um, now, if you're able to, to to pay the proposal off sooner than its term, so let's say you did a five-year proposal, and normally a five-year proposal would clear a year after it's paid off in the full six years. Let's say you get that proposal paid off a year in. Something great happens. You get a big bonus or you come into some money and you pay the proposal off. A proposal will clear the sooner if six years from the day you sign it or three years from when you pay it off. So if you pay a proposal off early, three years from when you paid it off is when it will uh, be purged from your bureau. But at the outside, only six years or the maximum of six years is what would actually be reflected. So, okay. So how much does it cost to file a consumer proposal? Well, probably a lot less than you think. Um, So there's no upfront fees uh, when someone files a consumer proposal. So as as anybody knows who hears this show, it's a free confidential consultation. Um, You come on in, you sit down with a trustee, we talk about the situation, figure out what the options are. If you do choose to file a consumer proposal, typically we don't take any payments until we know the proposal is going to be accepted. So if someone were to come in and let's say it's a $20,000 amount of debt and we're doing a proposal at $170 for three months, if they were signing with me today, I'd be saying, okay, it's probably about mid-January or so. That's when I'm going to know um, that your proposal is accepted. That's about a month out or 45 days out. Let's get your next withdrawal right around that time. So there's very little risk to the individual filing a consumer proposal. There's no upfront fees they have to pay the trustee. Whatever the monthly payment is, typically they just start making that payment once the proposal is accepted, and the trustee gets paid out of that monthly payment. So there's no separate bill they ever get from the trustee. If we can uh, basically conclude, here's what they can afford to repay. It's 170 a month over three years. The trustee gets a piece of that, and the rest goes to the creditors. Okay, so if somebody does want to charge me, Uh, Or if there's an extra fee or Mm -hmm. something, even just to sit down with a licensed insolvency trustee, is... Does are they are they violating any rules? That's or? what it sounds like to me. Yeah. Okay. If someone's saying you need to pay a fee to sit down with a trustee, then there's definitely something offside from ethics and from the law there. Okay. Um, now sometimes what's happening is you're being asked to pay a fee because it's not a trustee that you're meeting with. And that's the and that's the clue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So ask the person. You know, are you a licensed insolvency trustee? And if the answer is not yes, then you're probably paying fees that you don't need to pay. Okay. So how do I know uh, that my creditors are going to accept the consumer proposal? And what happens if they if they don't accept it? 
Well, you don't know for sure that they will accept the proposal, except, you know, basically from our experience is that they almost always do. So right. 95% of the time when we file a proposal, it's accepted on the first offer. 99% of the time when we file a proposal, if we have to do some negotiating back and forth, if we offered 170, they want 190, we settle at 180, we still reach a deal in about 99% of the cases. So okay. there's no guarantee. And, you know, sometimes if there's a personal creditor, um, or sometimes if it's the government, and even though they know that they would get more money in a consumer proposal, they still might vote it down just because they want to see somebody go through a punitive step of a bankruptcy. Well, that's very rare, less than 1% of cases. In almost every case, creditors tend to be very unemotional about the situation. I show them an analysis that says, well, here's more coming back to you in the proposal. Here's less coming back to you if you reject this this proposal and the person ends up filing a bankruptcy. What would you like to do? Almost every case, they say, yeah, we'd like to accept the proposal. And did you mention, because we've talked about this so many times, did you mention the fact that uh, you don't have to have all all the mm-hmm. all the creditors. I think I didn't, but I should. Yeah, um, because that's, that's huge. Too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So when you're dealing with the trustee, one of the best powers that we have is the ability to bind other creditors, so basically to make them go along. And the way that we get that ability is the law says if 50 percent of your debt want to as- accept a consumer proposal, it doesn't matter what 51 percent. It doesn't matter what the minority or the 49 percent of your debt want. If the majority of the creditors have said that they want to accept the proposal, the other creditors are forced to go along with it. So it could be Canada Revenue Agency who's taking your wages, who really, really doesn't want to see you do a proposal. But if Bank of uh, Montreal, MasterCard, RBC, all of those, if they say yes to a proposal and their debt is greater than CRA, CRA can't opt out of it. Even though they're the government, they are bound to adhere to the terms of the proposal. And that's the percentage, 51%, and that's the way it is right across the board, right? Exactly. That's yeah, 50% by dollar value. As soon as we're over 50%, it's accepted. It doesn't matter what the minority of creditors have to say. Can you talk just briefly about what happens um, if I can't finish the consumer proposal? Does that ever happen? It does, unfortunately. You know, sometimes situations happen where a person's circumstances change um, and proposals can be flexible, but we need to know about it in advance or at least know about it when it happens. So if things change during the term of the consumer proposal, if we file the proposal in three years in, the situation is just quite a bit different. Um, you can file what's called an amended proposal. Okay. So you'd sit down with the trustee and say, hey, when we started this proposal, I was earning 3000 a month. Now I'm earning 2500 a month. I just can't afford to make these same payments. The trustee will send out an amended proposal, lowering the payments to your creditors. I've actually never had an amended proposal not get accepted by creditors, almost always they're still willing to work with the person. But if the person were to go a little bit silent on the trustee, as soon as they've missed more than three months worth of payments, and if they haven't caught them up by the fourth month, then the proposal can fail and they can be in a tough situation. But if they stay in touch with the trustee, generally there's there's not that tough situation. And that's the key, right? Is let you know what's going mm-hmm. on if something should change. Absolutely. And, and, yeah. So listen, if, if you'd like more information, check out the website, sans-trustee.com. It's just chock-a-block full of good questions and lots of good answers. Uh, for a whole bunch on a whole bunch of topics concerning consumer proposals and debt and budgeting and all that kind of stuff. And if you'd like to make that uh, appointment, call them toll free at 1 800 661 3030. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.